You've come to the right place. If you're a course creator looking to build more impact, income, and freedom, LMSCast is the number one podcast for course creators just like you. I'm your guide, Chris Badgett. I'm the co-founder of the most powerful tool for building, selling, and protecting engaging online courses called Lifter LMS. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of LMS Cast. My name is Chris Badgett, and I'm joined by a special guest, Julie Dirksen. She's the author of Design for How People Learn. It's on the second edition. Uh, I had so much fun and so many light bulbs go off when I read this book because as a course creator myself, I'm not uh, a more of an expert and a technologist who kind of got into teaching later. I'm not an instructional designer and unnecessarily a teacher per se. So this book has really helped me and I highly recommend it. Julie, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah. Um, I wanted to start with you know, where you started making the light bulbs go off for the education entrepreneurs out there. Uh, you talk about gaps and it's not just about the information. So when you're, you know, designing a course or a curriculum, you know, there's more than just getting them the information. You talk about a skills gap, a knowledge gap, a motivation gap, a habits gap, and a communication gap. Can you elaborate on the gaps and like how people can kind of let's I actually have three examples for you that I prepared for the show. Feel free to use your own. But if you I was just thinking about our audience here. So if any one of these types of people is helpful in an example, feel free to use them or use your own. Um, so we have a lot of people building business courses where they're like helping people try to get from like one level in business to another level through things like marketing or better business management or better HR all kinds of courses in that vein. We also have like health entrepreneurs who are trying to help a specific segment. Let's say like a 40 year old stressed out dad wants to get back in shape, that kind of course. And then like a lot of relationship stuff, like, you know, peaceful parenting type type stuff. So there's a, I'm just giving you some avatars there, but if we talk about gaps, how does that fit into the online course ecosystem? Yeah, well, one of the biggest challenges we often have with online courses is almost all the almost all the online learning technology out there seems to kind of imply that the basic unit of learning is a, a piece of information. And if I can just convey this piece of information that will change things for people. But when we start to get into certain kinds of behaviors, um, we find out that it's often information is not the gap. Um, you know, if it was, all we would have to do is tell people that smoking can kill you and they'd stop smoking. But most people aren't still smoking because nobody happened to mention to them that it's a bad idea. You know, it's not because somebody forgot to tell them um, uh, or that they don't have the information. There's other stuff going on. And so when we look at a, um, a particular objective, something, some behavior that we want people to be able to apply or do in the real world. So for example, in the small business realm, it might be something to do with tax accounting. And that might be pretty procedural. We know exactly what we performance needs to look like. We have a well-defined rule set. I just need to help you understand how to set up, um, you know, how to set up certain documentation and how to execute it correctly, you know, how to pay your um, quarterly, you know, estimated taxes or something like that. And that's really nice and clear cut and they, we know exactly what the rules are and that's great. So that can be taken care of as a knowledge or a procedural problem pretty easily. But then we start to move into some other areas like, oh gosh, in parenting, um, you know, reinforcing the right behaviors with kids, you know, without getting into a fight about it every single time. Let's say that's a behavior that we want somebody to do. Well, there's a whole bunch of stuff there, right? Um, there's, you know, knowing what a good method is, but then you're also having to adjust it for the personalities involved, your personality, your child's personality. Then there's also like some skill to it. You know, you know good versions of that when you see it, but it, you can't always say, it would look exactly like this. You would say these exact six things, you know, because you're not, that's not how it works. You're going to adjust. Um, and so that would be something that I would kind of classify more in the skill area um, and probably habits too. Um, I, I've added habits to the, the, to the list of things that, that kind of come up because somebody can know the right 
thing to do. They can even have the ability to do it and it can still not be a habit. And so when we look at trying to help people develop habits, there's some other strategies that we can employ there. So just depending on what it is, I usually do kind of a process of analysis and I say, is this primarily a knowledge problem? And honestly, it almost never is um, once in a while, but pretty rarely. Is it is it procedural where we know the rules and I just need to learn how to do it? Okay. Is it skill-based where I, it's not, people just don't get good at it until they've practiced it, you know, some number of times. Is it habit where I need you to do it automatically in response to a particular trigger in the environment? Is it um, motivation where you have all of the tools and yet it's the behavior still isn't happening? Um, what's, you know, and when something's a motivation issue, uh, then there's a whole sort of subset of reasons to look at that you can start to think about why would somebody be doing or not doing the right thing in those environments. And then sometimes it's a communication issue or a case where fixing the environment's easier than trying to fix the person. You know, they, um, uh, there might be instances where, oh, well, you know, instead of trying to teach people how to use this complicated setting on their iPhone, Apple should just make the setting easier. And then people don't really need to learn how to use it anymore. So that can be a case where fixing the environment's better than trying to fix the person. That's awesome. And like in the quit smoking course, uh, you know, having people stop going to, you know, bars or coffee shops where people smoke is probably more important than the knowledge that smoking is bad. (laughs) I love the environmental fix. Yeah, it is. Well, and um, one of the best tools in the habit space is something called implementation intentions, which is uh, something that was studied by a um, a researcher named Peter Golwitzer. And what they looked at is they're like, well, if you if you have a plan ahead of time, when you get into a fraught situation, it's much easier to respond. So if you are trying to quit smoking, you could have a series of plans for dealing with different triggers that might cause you to smoke. So if I get a craving to smoke because I'm bored, I'll play Candy Crush on my phone. And if I get a craving to smoke because I'm in a social situation, I'll chew gum and I'll make sure I always, gum, I always have gum with me. If I get a craving to smoke because um, I'm stressed out, I'll call my sister. If I get a craving to smoke because it's after lunch and I always used to smoke after lunch, I'll take a walk around the building or something like that. So one of the best tools in the habit, the, the tool boxer habits is this idea of kind of creating your plan ahead of time because then when you actually bump into those situations you don't need to figure out what to do you can you know what you know what the plan is you just need to execute on it that makes a lot of sense i was recently working on a case study of one of our really successful course creators at lifter lms and it, it was a course about how to come into and out of gastric bypass surgery oh, and, it, and in the interview he was talking about like a very specific thing that he would teach people at a certain week after the surgery of what to do when you're driving by, you know, some of the trigger things like, uh, Uh, so he was getting into that. That's, Mm -hmm. and and this was somebody who was really successful and he wasn't teaching information there. He was teaching about what to do when you're triggered. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Um, I wanted to ask you, so I, as not a classically trained instructional designer, I do have a background in like anthropology and sociology and like communication and cultural stuff. That's what I'm really into. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have no formal training as a teacher. And as I'm trying to help these course creators with my software, uh, I came across a framework that I would give, teach people to help them figure out like how to structure their course. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping I can share that with you. Yeah. And then uh, if you could like just kind of comment it on it, you know, it potentially either add to it, make it better or present an alternative, that would be really cool. Sure. But I call it uh, like there's four course blueprints that people can kind of pick from. So let's imagine an expert who's not a teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the four of those types of courses to think about like which kind of course should I make the first one is called a behavior change course, which I know you, you can speak on. Another one's called the learner process. The third one is called a, uh, what, what I call a resource course, which I think is the most dangerous. That's where we just put all this great knowledge mm-hmm. in a yeah. library of resources. Yeah. The fourth one, which is kind of a new one that I see emerging that I'm not sure if it's own category or not, but is a case study course where we're really learning by deconstructing you know, example implementations or, or just by watching, you know, really deconstructing others. 
And then the fifth one, if you will, would just be kind of a hybrid that tries to blend a lot of that stuff together. What are so, how is that as a framework for the beginning course creator? What would you, how could you make it better? Am I missing a type or do you recommend? Yeah, no, no, no. I think it makes sense. I mean, you know, the, the, there's, there's several kind of nice things. I think you're right about the resource course um, because I think it's tempting to just have that be the kind of kitchen sink thing. And that's, that's one of the, one of the classic issues that new course creators bump into is, um, so you may or may not remember it from the book, but I always use the analogy of like your brain is like a closet. Um, and one of the things that you do is that the more complex your understanding of a topic gets, sort of the more shelves and the bigger your closet gets. So you get somebody who's a real expert in their area um, and they're, they have like the beautiful California closet, right? Um, so I will often have people in my workshops who are musicians and I'll be like, okay, well tell me you're a guitar player. Great. How many different kinds of guitars do you know of? What kinds of genres do you think about? Um, what's, um, all of the equipment that you need to maintain a guitar, like all this kind of stuff. And they can tell me lots and lots and lots of information. I know, nothing more about guitar playing than, you know, the average person walk, the average non-guitar player. Um, And so their closet is for guitars is incredibly well-developed. And so if you hand them a new piece of information about a guitar, they're like, okay, it's over here and it's matched up to this and it's like this and they can classify it right away. But then what happens is that person is going to turn around and teach a course Um, about guitars to somebody else who's a novice, who's genuinely new. And they love all the stuff on their shelves and they think it's great, right? And they want to take it all and give it to these people because look at all of this wonderful stuff. But then what happens is the person with, you know, who's the novice has the equivalent of like one of those half-size gym lockers, you know, and that, and like maybe there's one shelf on it. And so when you take everything out of this big, beautiful closet and you try to dump it on that person, they can't handle it. They don't know what to do with all of that information. So, um, you know, the art of kind of figuring it out is good structured ways that, that this person can make sense so that they can get a few pieces, kind of get those filed away. And then they can start to expand their own closet and their own understanding and add a few shelves. And, you know, and usually the way that people do that is they do something with the information. Um, just handing them the information really doesn't usually help anybody too, too much. I mean, it can, but, but generally the way that people start to really understand and build out their closets is that they actually interact with the information and they take action on it and they use it to do something. And that's what helps them start to kind of um, understand it. We know that from, there's some nice research in the science learning literature where they look at um, uh, physics principles and people could memorize the physics principle. They could recite it for you, but it turns out that they really couldn't like use it to say, predict the path of an object or um, they didn't really understand what to do with it until they'd kind of gone through the process of using it to using it to build something or using it to do an experiment or, you know, something like that. And so just knowing something um, is not the same as being able to use it to do something. And you don't really know it until you have had the opportunity to use it for something basically. It's the short version. <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. Um, I want to ask you about a related topic here and I'm, I'm inside your book. Um, you talked about the the different levels of proficiency. I'm just going to read them off here. It's familiarization, comprehension, conscious effort, conscious action, proficiency, and then unconscious competence. So that like master musician that is like unconsciously competent mm-hmm. yeah. and things are just falling away and the closet's huge. Um, what should our goal be as course creators? Are we supposed to make courses that adapt based on the level of the learner or or should we do like marketing and stuff so that we get the right person in that's at the right stage so that we're kind of teaching to the right level uh maybe i'm oversimplifying it there but like how do you deal with the proficiency problem probably the latter um you know you're probably trying to make sure that you have the right people in the room because dealing with an audience with really variable proficiency is one of the hardest problems you ever deal with as a teacher or as an, as an instructional designer. Um, and there aren't great solutions for it. You can use your really expert people in your class as a resource for, you know, newer people. Um, and that's usually the best option. Or you can give people, 
the ability to um, pull information when they need it rather than kind of making everybody sit through the same information. So if I give you a challenge and I give you a series of resources that you can use to answer that challenge, then you can pick how many resources you need in order to be able to answer the challenge. And if you're new, you need probably need all of them. But if you're a pretty expert, maybe you just check one real quick and keep going. And so that's a way to have the same experience be more variable for different audiences. Um, it's a tough problem, though. You're best off if you have kind of a, a narrower range in the classroom and then you can tailor the experience to, to those people. Um, I realize that sometimes that's hard, you know, because sometimes your audience is all the people and you have to deal with the issue of, um, uh, you have to deal with the issue of, uh, you know, variability and so forth in the audience. Um, the, um, the levels there, um, frequently you're dealing with, um, so that that there's a couple different versions of that scale. I happen to like that one, but there's other ones. There's the unconscious competence, conscious incompetence, conscious uh, conscious competence, unconscious incompetence. That's another one, but I always think that one's confusing to explain. Um, uh, so with this one, it's kind of like driving. So familiarity is you just learn what the controls are in the car, um, uh, and then you work your way up to um, things like conscious effort where you're trying to succeed, but you're not completely there. Conscious, um, you know, conscious execution or when you start to get to the point where you're like, okay, now I'm getting, I got this. I think I can drive. That was about the point where my dad like let me out of the parking lot and I could actually like drive around the block once. Proficiency is about the point where you would take the driver's test. And then unconscious competence is that thing where you drive home from work and you find yourself pulling into the driveway and you realize you totally don't remember the drive home at all. But because you didn't you crash. Were just, yeah, you didn't crash. <laughs> but you were, you know, you totally didn't need to pay attention to the act of driving because it was a route you know and you've been driving such a long time that, that those things could just happen without you having to pay conscious attention to it. Now, that's not a realistic goal. That unconscious competence is not a realistic goal for most of the learning experiences we're providing people. Because that's, that's the highest That's yeah. level, right? And, and people don't get there until they practice so much that it, they can do it without thinking about it. Do you believe um, in the 10,000 hours theory or whatever? It's, <laughs> I, it's not 10,000 hours. Um, the answer is it depends. So yes, but not, you know, it's... You know, for certain kinds of things, it might be 2,000 hours. For other things, it might be 15. You're going to get variability depending on the person. Um, so uh, that that idea of 10,000 hours comes from research by a researcher named Anders Ericsson, who has done looked a lot at people who really get to that level of mastery with things like music education or... Um, uh, uh, like he's looked at how, you know, radiologists get trained to read x-rays and things like that. And so one of the things we know in those instances is that people need to see a lot of examples to start to develop that expertise. So for example, um, oh, you know, if we go back to the parenting example, you might need to see, you know, somebody handling a difficult interaction with a, with a child like four or five or six times and see um, some variability around it before you start to go, okay, I see some common elements, right? I start to see some pattern recognition um, that allows me to like pick out um, some themes that I can do for myself. Uh, so when we're dealing with something like that, um, whenever, whenever I'm working with a subject matter expert and they say, well, it's hard for, it's hard to say, but you know it when you see it right? That kind of performance, you know that they learned it through seeing lots of examples and that that's probably a learning experience we're going to have to provide for our learners is how do they see lots of examples so that they start to kind of go, okay, I'm starting to see the pattern. I'm starting to see what, what puts these things together and, and how it might work for my, you know, my thing, whatever it is. Which is kind of how doctors are trained, you know, with residency mm -hmm. and everything. I mean, it's yep. just time seeing the patients and the patients is part of the school. Yep. Yep. Lots and lots and lots of cases where they go through the diagnostic process. I want to go back to the little locker and the concept of getting <laughs> results. Uh, so I'm a big proponent of what I call results-based learning. Mm -hmm. And it's one thing to get the information, but what people who buy courses and memberships and things like that is they really want some kind of result. They don't just, they want the information might help get them there. But how does, you know, a subject matter expert get better at 
not just providing information, but developing a curriculum that gets results along the way and ultimately delivers, you know, whatever the big results promise is. Like, what are they doing wrong and what should they consider adding to their thought process or curriculum design? Right. Um, well, the, the thing that I always start with when I'm working with um, somebody on a curriculum is what do you really want people to do or be able to do? Um, you know, if, if I went and watched them in the environment and they were doing the right thing, you know, what would that actually look like? What actions would I would see? What behaviors would I see? Because sometimes you get called in and they're like, we want a course on how to be really customer focused. And I'm like, okay, that's great. That's a nice idea. Sounds terrific. My view of what being customer focused might be different than yours. So, so tell me what, what's somebody actually doing if they're being customer focused? Um, what does that actually look like? Like what actions are happening? And, and that is hard for some people to come up with. Um, and then from there, you can say, okay, if that's the action that people need to take, they need to, you know, um, uh, they need to make sure that they're asking customers, um, you know, if there's anything else they needed or something like that, then you can kind of take that and kind of go, okay, well, what information do they need to support that action? Um, what practice do they need to support that action? Um, is there a motivation issue that's going to come into play there? All of those sorts of questions. But ultimately, um, uh, whenever I do learning objectives or something, I just have two criteria that I um, that I ask people to consider for those. And the first one is, would it happen in the real world? And the second one is, can you tell if they've done it? Um, and so I will get a learning objective like programmers need to understand the limitations of JavaScript as a pro programming tool. And so then I'm like, okay, well, it's great. Sure. I'm, I'm sure that that's a true statement. If they do understand the limitations of JavaScript as a programming tool, what do they do with that? Like, when do they use that knowledge? Under what conditions? What are they using it to do? And they're like, oh, well, you know, they would use it to evaluate whether it's a good programming tool for a particular project. I'm like, okay. So now I have, this is the execution in the real world. They're going to get a project and they're going to decide is JavaScript a good tool for it or not and maybe be able to say, here's why, you know, okay, great. Now I have a visible behavior that um, tells me that probably I'm going to need case studies of different types of projects. And one of the tasks I'm going to ask learners to do is evaluate JavaScript as a tool for those um, as, as a tool for those and think about why or why not, you know, and that that's going to be an activity I'm going to want them to do in the, in the lesson um, uh, or in one of the lessons. So being really, really clear about the behaviors, because then you can start to think about what information supports those behaviors is, is better than saying, I have all this information. Let me just tell it to you because you'll be able to do stuff with it. And that's where, that's where things that's where things frequently go awry. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's super good. So you kind of have to like reality check, like what does it look like in the real world if this is true? That, yeah. That's awesome. You, you mentioned a topic in your book I was hoping you could elaborate on, which is the difference between real versus perceived knowledge. This sounds like, oh, a, yeah. is this a student problem or an expert problem or both? Oh, you know, everybody. Um, yeah, <laughs> human. Oh, yeah, it's a human problem. I think that's true. Probably animals have it too. Um, uh, but it's, we, we understand certain things at different levels. Um, and one of the kind of conventional wisdom is this idea that um, we all accept that like creating these classes is often a really good learning experience for the person creating the class. So like to, to teach is to learn. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. When you find out where all the holes are in your knowledge, <laughs> yeah. you're like, I thought I understood that really, really well. And it turns out nah, it's only about 50, 50 on that. Um, when I was, uh, when I was first out of college, I had a job teaching English as a foreign language and you know, I was an English major. I thought I knew English pretty well. And all of a sudden I'm like, what is a past participle again? Huh, <laughs> hey, I'm going to have to look that up, you know, or whatever the part of speech was. But there were a whole bunch of things that like I knew how to say, you know, I mean, I knew how to speak correctly and I knew how to say certain things. And, uh, but boy, when it came to teaching it, I found out that, yeah, there's a lot of stuff I'm 
not as clear on as I probably should be if I'm going to be the expert and I'm going to be the teacher for these, for these students. And so, um, and that's actually been borne out in the research too. Um, Karpicki and Blunt and a few other people. Um, there's another very good book called um, uh, Make It Stick, uh, which goes through a lot of the research um, around learning. And uh, they, some of the research that the authors of that book did was looking at what the best method for studying something was and they tested a couple of different conditions they had sort of traditional studying where you might review notes or something they did the mind mapping thing um, and then they did retrieval practice which was they people would test themselves um, and far and away retrieval practice was the most successful way to to learn because um, because you think you know topics better than you really do when you're just kind of reviewing stuff but then when it actually comes to the point where you have to be able to like pull it out of your head in a coherent way you're like oh this is a lot spottier than i thought it was um, could you summarize you know, we, what you mean by retrieval practice retrieval practice so um uh, basically trying to uh you know if you know all the steps for cpr can you write down all the steps for cpr so i have you to know? go in and pull it out yeah I pull see. it out and you know i they had different methods for testing it, I think, whether it was writing stuff down or, but just sort of establishing that you know it. Um, so, uh, you know, the, um, uh, well, you know, you were just doing that scale um, from um, uh, familiarity all the way up to unconscious competence. And I have, I have explained that scale probably dozens and dozens of times. And I was like, surely I know this cold. And I'm like, nope, nope, I don't. Because, um, I usually have a slide in front of me when I'm going through this with people. And I'm like, yep, that's kind of appalling because I really should know that one. And I'm sure if I sat down and worked at it, I could actually, I could actually come up with all the elements. But it, nonetheless, I was like, whoa, I thought I, I thought I knew that without, you know, without any question. And it's like, nope, nope, there's some questions. So that's um, awesome. We, we a- get, we're much more confident than we should be about certain knowledge. <laughs> I often talk on this podcast about the five hats problem, but I actually have it written on the wall in front of me because sometimes I can't retrieve it, especially when I'm on the spot, like in a live mm-hmm. call or whatever. I'm like expert, community builder, instructional designer, te- technologist, entrepreneur. It's not, sometimes yeah. I can't get one. <laughs> and I'm like, it's, right, not, right. it's not like all the way there, even though I've said it on half the episodes on this podcast and here we are at mm-hmm. 200. <laughs> yep. Um, another one that you talk about as social learning. What does that mean to you? Where does that fit in? Uh, so there's a couple of different uh, pieces that, um, first of all, people can learn a lot from each other. And when they're in an actual classroom and you're doing like group activities or something, there's a lot of, you know, like, oh, somebody doesn't understand something. Somebody who does understand it will like quickly explain it to them while the activity is going on or things like that. And um, so there's all of this like wonderful value uh, um, um, and knowledge that's in the learners in your environment, um, in your classroom, whether it's virtual or, you know, instructor-led or, you know, something like that. But, um, but you need something, you need some ways for people to be able to kind of take advantage of all of that knowledge that they can share with each other. Um, social learning is particularly great when you're dealing with um, things like one-off situations, you know, where there isn't like necessarily a written down right answer, but people can kind of help them problem solve around a particular challenge that they're dealing with. Or it's really great when content, you know, the material or the knowledge is sort of always changing and evolving. So what's the best, um, you know, what's the best system for processing credit card payments? The answer to that question is different, you know, as new players kind of come into the field and as technology changes and all of those kinds of things. So that, that answer is sometimes the best thing you can do is to kind of throw go out to the community or the hive mind or whatever it is and say, who's using what right now and what do you like about it and things like that. Um, and social media and all of these things are making it really feasible for us to learn stuff from other people in our environments, but really good, um, really good learning environments have have this element of community to them and this element of knowledge sharing and it's a nice way to see a lot of examples or see what's working for people um you know there's just a lot of there's a lot of power there very cool i want to ask you about uh you know something that's very popular in the online world that we come across 
uh, and a part of our tool helps people with this is coaching. Mm -hmm. And just to give a classic example, let's say with our entrepreneur course, if I'm teaching a certain type of business, how to go to 100K to a million dollars, that's my promise. And I have a course I have, so that's like, let's say $100. And then I have the course plus a six-week coaching program and that's $1,000. And then I have a, like a done-for-you service where I just make it happen for you. That's like the service. So the way I talk about that is the, the course by itself is the do-it-yourself model. Mm-hmm. The course plus coaching is the done-with-you. And then the, uh, you know, the service where, you know, the consultant comes in and just makes it happen. That's the done for you. Mm-hmm. If we're going to add coaching to a more of a passive static course, how, how can people who aren't necessarily trained as coaches do that job? What is the job of the coach? And, and is that any different from the job of a teacher? Uh, I'm sure you've seen the coaching industry exploding and it's like, what's going on here? And the quality is all over the place. Um, One of the biggest challenges with the online is that it's hard to get feedback on stuff that you're doing Um, because most um, like online quizzes or something, it's this recognition thing. So it's, I, I'm given a set of, cho- of choices and I choose the right answer and I find out if I'm right. That's a much easier thing to do than to come up with the right answer on, on the spot, right? So like if you were given a list of your five hats, you would be able to pick out the uh-huh. right list, you yeah. know, without any problem, but you can't necessarily like always come up with all five of them just off the top of your head. So recognizing is an easier activity than um, recalling or, you know, being able to kind of generate a new answer to a particular problem or something like that. Um, the problem with the more performance-based thing, even though that's a better way to practice doing the thing, it's hard to get feedback um, from a computer system system. You, you kind of need a live person to give you feedback. So when we get into the online learning space, you're often, you know, like, let's say you're doing a course on how to do a business plan or something, you know, in the online course, you may see some examples of other people's business plans. You might get feedback from an instructor, but it depends on how the course is structured. But if you're coaching, you're getting that kind of, hopefully getting that kind of feedback all the way along, along the path. And so people are helping you course correct and explaining when something's wrong and, you know, giving you options of what you can do and things like that. So you get that level of guidance and feedback and that's really important. Um, There is an art to good coaching um, and it's probably, if people are offering coaching as a service, it's probably something they should invest a little bit in learning how to, how to coach well. Um, You know, the best coaches don't, aren't like do this, do this, do this. The best coaches help you figure out how to, how to act in certain circumstances. So a really good coach will ask you questions to lead you towards answers rather than just telling you the answer. Um, so, you know, and there's a, there's a lot more to it than that, but, but that's where, um, you know, there's some skill associated with being a good coach as well as just having expertise and being able to provide feedback on things. Do you have any comments about uh, the concept of the mastermind? I guess that kind of goes into social learning a little bit, but it's also popular. Like if you have like these different levels of service and then let's say one of the highest levels that you can engage with a particular expert is to go to some kind of location, small group of people to have like a, you know, three day to seven day mastermind where they get together like what's going when learning is happening in a mastermind context is there do you have any comments on that of where yeah, yeah I, I mean whether or not that's that's worth it is something that you can't evaluate in the um uh, in the absence of context or something like that but there are some really nice advantages to that um you know one of the interesting things that we're dealing with with a lot of online learning is just the challenge of focus um, and so sometimes the fact that a, you know, a retreat or a class or something takes you out of your regular environment and helps kind of separate you from your distractions is a service in and of itself that they're providing to you is this help kind of 
shutting out the noise of the daily world and actually being, you know, having kind of clear space in order to really focus on stuff. Um, in that instance, obviously you get access to an expert, but you also get access to other people who are hopefully approaching this at a pretty high level. And so you get that social element as well. So there's several things about it that are really appealing. I mean, whether it's the right answer for everybody in every context really depends, but, um, but it's an, you know, I, I can see why it's appealing to people. You also mentioned uh, that like learners are different than you, and that might be <laughs> shelf space, shelf size, and all, and closet. Right. But, but can you speak to that a little more, and also just to the learning styles, because different people, you know, might have a different learning style than you. Yeah, you know, and the 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 big thing with learning styles is that most of the meta analyses find that differentiated instruction, which I realize is nerdy terms, but the idea that you would change the instruction depending on somebody's learning style. That the research has not supported that as a very good approach. It doesn't really, um, it rarely uh, um, is worth the cost of doing it because you have to have different paths for different people. Um, and it turns out that what you really should do is just kind of have a mix of styles in in how you deal with stuff. Um, probably is is the most um, the best use of resources in that particular instance. Um, you know, it's learning styles often go to the idea that you're a visual learner or an auditory learner or a kinesthetic learner. And, you know, the truth is, unless you've got some kind of you know, disability you're dealing with, everybody's a visual learner and an auditory learner and a kinesthetic learner. And so having a mix of approaches probably supports most of your learners. Um, you know, obviously, if somebody's hearing impaired or, you know, something like that, then then that that kind of knocks that one of those channels, but um, uh, but but for you know for people who um, don't have something like that, there everybody everybody learns from visuals, everybody learns from interacting with material, you know things like that. Um, so uh, there was the first part of the question. Sorry, I lost it. Uh, the first part just had to do with learners are different from you. Do you have any other comments yeah. besides the closet? Yeah, yeah, no, I, one of the things, so I always say that I'm an instructional designer because I'm happy as long as I get to learn something new, and it turns out it actually doesn't matter very much what it is, like literally anything, like insurance procedures, sure, hey, that's kind of interesting how that works, okay, you know, and some topics get old faster than others, but um, but nonetheless, like, I will happily learn, I've learned about everything from how um, fuel, speed, density, fuel injection works to... Um, cross-cultural issues in healthcare to, uh, oh gosh, um, you know, AIDS and HIV prevention to healthcare regulations, doesn't matter. I'm happy learning about new stuff. I just enjoy that. Um, and the first time I realized that like, oh, not everybody feels that way. <laughs> Some people view, you know, learning a new thing is, is kind of a chore that you sort of have to make yourself do. And I'm like, oh, that is really useful information for me to bear in mind. Because um, I will get as nerdy and wonky about certain topics as you possibly can imagine. Not everybody feels that way. Not everybody is like, I want to know all the random details about the, you know, how that works. Um, so keeping some of that stuff in mind. Um, the other big issue with that is making sure that you're testing stuff out with your learners. Um, that you're talking to people who are in your target audience, that you are, um, you can do usability testing, you can get feedback, you know, because you're always going to be designing a little bit in the tunnel of your own knowledge. Um, and so if you're not figuring out some way to find out what's working and what's not working for your learners, you're going to have blind spots. You just, it's just an inevitable part of, of designing anything. Very cool. Um, I want to talk to you about the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. So mm -hmm. intrinsic being that, you know, you're motivated from within extrinsic means there's like, you have to do something. Right. Um, and perhaps I'm not describing that well, but if I'm talking to somebody about, our software, for example, if they say, sometimes a, a question will come in like, how do I make sure that somebody can't mark the lesson as complete until they finish watching the video? <laughs> They're putting like extern, this is like some kind of HR safety training course, mandatory right. something. Yep. And then there's the other people who are like, I'm trying to like change this type of person's life. Can your software do X, blah, 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 blah for social and coaching? Right. It's like, a, I can tell in a second, like, oh, this is a, 
intrinsic extrinsic course is it an right. either or proposition i'm not saying it's bad or good yeah no it's much more of a continuum um the continuum um the sort of dominant motivation theory which i which i have a little bit of in the second book um not in, i don't spend a ton of time on it but um is something called self-determination theory and the researchers are edward Dussey and rich ryan um and what they looked at is they sort of said there's three big kind of things that motivate people. Um, sometimes it's a feeling of mastery will motivate people. Sometimes it's a feeling of autonomy, this feeling that they're in control. And sometimes, you know, that they, they sort of have control over their own destinies. And sometimes it's a feeling of relatedness to other people and that those are the big motivators. Um, and that when we look at uh, extrinsic to intrinsic kind of as a continuum, um, more intrinsic motivation is usually what's considered to be better quality motivation. So for example, you, if I don't reinforce you all that often, you'll still do it more if, you're in, if your motivation is intrinsic. So even if I'm not standing there going, you have to, um, people will still do it if it's more intrinsically motivated. So all the way to intrinsic is people do it just because they like it, right? Um, so uh, my a friend of mine is a guitar player, and he doesn't care if anybody listens to him. He's just happy playing his guitar, and he'll sit at home on a Saturday afternoon on the couch and play his guitar for a couple hours, and it doesn't matter. He's not doing it because people like it or people, you know, watch him. You know, like he doesn't get. It's not about the feedback from other people. It's just he really enjoys that activity. Somebody else might play the guitar because they really like. Um, connecting with other musicians. And so it's a relatedness thing or somebody else might play the guitar because they like being a guitar player and that it has some status and that, you know, people admire it or that they get, you know, applause or things like that. And so that's, you know, my friend on this couch is, is fully intrinsic. It's just a satisfying activity all the way to more of an extrinsic kind of thing you know all the way at the other end of the spectrum somebody's a guitar player just because they think they can make a lot of money being a guitar player and they don't you know if they don't necessarily care about guitar but it's you know it's a path to riches or something like that so that continuum the further over towards intrinsic usually the more durable the motivation is um usually you get better quality results from it um and if you try to start to use extrinsic rewards around an intrinsic task, you can actually damage motivation. So they did an experiment with kids. And if you give kids markers and paper, they will draw you pictures. And these pictures might be fabulous. My, um, my godson draws these Minecraft pictures, and they're crazy elaborate, these huge mazes. And, you know, it takes him like 10 minutes to explain one of these pictures because the guy falls in the pit with the spikes and then swings across and then all the things, right? Um, and it's this beautiful, elaborate, colorful picture. Um, but then they, when they did this experiment, if they just let the kids draw, the kids would draw and it was great. Um, but then they started giving the kids, I don't know, money, like a quarter for every picture that they drew. And so what happened was, um, first of all, the kids ultimately drew less pictures because they kind of got tired of it because it sort of turned into work. Um, but then also the quality of the pictures diminished quite a bit. And so instead of these beautiful elaborate pictures, you'd get a circle and they'd be like, here, where's my quarter? You know, so, um, Using extrinsic motivators, which is either um, reward or, uh, you know, some kind of coercion or compliance, you have to do this, we won't let you move on until you watch the whole video, works, but you have to, you have to keep the pressure up the whole time, otherwise the behavior will stop, and you also create, create resentment in your users because it really goes against their feeling of autonomy because they feel like somebody's externally trying to control them and they'll resist that. Um. The self-determination theory has come up before in this podcast. Would you, do you think it's pretty rock solid on, as a motivational framework? Is there anything you'd add to it or do you just find it to be? I, you know, it's kind of the gold standard right now in terms of motivation theory. Um, and most of the people that I really respect in the behavior change space are absolutely, you know, clear on it. And most of the research that I've seen, I, I feel pretty good about. We're having this issue in social sciences where everything is getting kind of beaten up, beaten up now. Um, they're finding that lots of studies that people sort of accepted for a long time are not holding up when they try to replicate them and things like that. So we've got this whole kind of crisis in, uh, in uh, you know, in social, um, in social sciences around things we thought we understood pretty well are starting to look a little wobbly. So um, I What's would say... What's an example of that? Oh, gosh. Um, 
Daniel Kahneman is a um, behavioral economist. He won the Nobel Prize last year, the year before, or something like that. For and he's kind of one of the grandfathers of behavioral economics. And he printed something. There's a website called Redaction. I think it's Redaction.com or RedactionWatch.com or .org. One of those. Um, I could find it, but uh, he there was some research in there about priming effect. And it was this research where they gave people these word problems. And some of the word problems were loaded with words about like elderly people. And then they, they thought that those people after they had been reading these words about elderly people and they're doing these like word games. So they're not consciously, you know, it's not like they say here, have a list about old people. It was, they were just hidden in the, in the task but that people who had gotten primed with more words about elderly people were like walked more slowly and things like down a hallway to turn in their sheet or things like that. And so it was this idea that you could prime somebody with lots of images by the elderly and change their behavior about it. And it turned out that that one didn't hold up terribly well um, uh, under research. Another one is um, that's gotten beaten up recently is the marshmallow study. Um, This is the idea that if you... um, in front can, of kids? Yeah, with the kids, right? If you can wait, you get two marshmallows. But if you can't wait, you eat the, if you either get the, you can have the one marshmallow now or you can wait and get two marshmallows. And so it's been used as kind of evidence of, um, uh, you know, that willpower and grit is a predictor of success and all of those kinds of things. And the most recent thing that's kind of come out just in the last month or two um, about that one is that when they tried to replicate it, they actually found a correlation with um, economic status of the families. Um, And so if you come from a family where there's more money in the household, you're more willing to wait for a reward, which actually kind of makes sense. Yeah. Um, And also having more money in the household can also be a, a predictor of several of those things like you know, success and uh, academic achievement and all of those kinds of things. So we don't know if it's really willpower that, you know, A, we don't know if it was really willpower that kind of conveyed success um, and B, um, you know, we've got a conflation variable with uh, uh, economic status. And so it's, you know, things we thought we understood pretty well are now like, "Ah, maybe, maybe not. So that's interesting. Um, one more question for you, and this is from somebody in our community. Uh, there's there's a, uh, an idea that you can do a course or a coaching program or a membership or combination that creates results in the short term. And then there's this other idea that you can do the same thing, but create a lifelong transformation. So if I were to use a specific example, if we look at like the 40-year-old stressed out dad thing. Maybe it's something like the result would be, I'm going to train you through my online course on how to run your first marathon. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then let's say after the course is over, the, you know, the marathons happens, it's awesome, but kind of slips back into old habits. Right. Whereas a transformation of like, I'm going to, I'm going to teach you, I'm going to get you in better shape or get you on a regular exercise routine and by the way, you're going to run a marathon along the way, but this is, it's like lifelong transformation. Like mm-hmm. what's the difference in the curriculum design there? Oh, wow. You know, the, the latter is almost like therapy for exercise. Um, I actually was just talking to somebody about this this morning um, where, uh, you know, your framing of something like exercise uh, is, um, is it something you get to do or is it something that you have to do? And if it's something you have to do, I might be able to coach you through that have to um, framework. But if it can be something that I actually help you learn to enjoy and like doing, that's going to, again, be a much more durable way of, you know, focusing on it. Um, People who focus on exercise for um, like losing weight or getting in shape or something like that, which are these sort of far-flung goals, that tends to not be as durable as hey, let's find some activities that you really enjoy doing and that make you, that you get some kind of immediate benefit for it. So if I get to go for a walk in the afternoon, um, I'm more relaxed or, you know, for the rest of my day or something like that. Or it's a treat because I, I live right by the Mississippi and it's beautiful there right now. So if I get to go for a walk, that's, a, that's something pleasurable I get to do as opposed to I have to go exercise now. Um, and so if we can change how you frame something so that you are actually 
um, now looking for opportunities to do that kind of stuff, as opposed to, I just dragged you kicking and screaming through it. Um, then we're much less likely to see that kind of, you know, that sort of backsliding and things like that. That's really interesting. I have, I've trained for a marathon, but they, and I've run a marathon before, but the, um, I have a morning routine where I go for a morning walk or run and I enjoy it. I mean, I, I like being outside in nature and walking my dogs and stuff like that. But what actually motivates me to do it is I'm kind of a, you know, podcast junkie. So I get like mm -hmm. an hour of like, you know, having my mind exercise and, you know, right, right, right. like I was listening to you this morning on a health and fitness podcast. I can't, I forget the name of it. Otherwise I'd say it, it was for a podcast targeting personal trainers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was lift the bar. I think that's it. Um, yep. but that's super enjoyable, enjoyable to me. I, mm -hmm. so that's how I, that's just, it's interesting the way you frame that. That's like mm -hmm. what got me, what got the habit installed, not just the goal of running a race one time. The sooner we get a reward, the more powerful it is. So if we push rewards out into the future or consequences out into the future, we'll discount them. And that's, again, a principle from behavioral economics. And I see that as the common element for all of the difficult behaviors, right? Um, so typically, like, if you start running to run a marathon, you get some positive feedback along the way and that you kind of keep seeing your endurance build up and you keep seeing you're making progress and run longer and longer distances. But then once it's done, you've kind of like hit your goal and there's nothing to kind of continue to pull you forward unless you become somebody who runs lots of marathons or, you know, things like that. Um, but, you know, what you're describing with the podcast, that pays off right away. Like you get something pleasurable immediately out of the experience. And that's... Including, including doing the dishes. That's what gets me. Yeah. I look forward. I fight over doing the dishes with my wife because, you know what, I'm going <laughs> to pop these in and learn something. Nice. nice. <laughs> I might even I slow like down it. a little bit and make things extra clean. Yeah. So. No, a friend of mine and I have started doing a phone call clean our house together. Um, <laughs> and it's great because we can just hang out and chat with each other, but we also get our houses clean and that's really like a fantastic arrangement so that is awesome well julie dirksen she is the author of design for how people learn second edition and you're at usablelearning.com how else can people find out about you or connect with um, you so I will have some online courses available sometime later this year, hopefully by the end of the year at designbetterlearning.com. Um, and there'll be courses on instructional design. Uh, and then I'm also on Twitter, which at, uh, my Twitter handle is usable learning. And then I have a Facebook group for the book. Um, so there's a Facebook group called design for how people learn. Um, and there's lots and lots of really smart people engaging in social knowledge sharing on uh, um on uh on the facebook group too so that's awesome i think i think that's everything so mm -hmm. cool well julie thank you so much for coming on the show and and sharing your wisdom and expertise with us you that's listening i'd encourage you to listen to this one again because there were lots of uh nuggets of, of wisdom in there um thanks so much i really appreciate it yeah thanks for having me this has been fun and that's a wrap for this episode of lms cast I'm your guide, Chris Badgett. I hope you enjoyed the show. This show was brought to you by Lifter LMS, the number one tool for creating, selling, and protecting engaging online courses to help you get more revenue, freedom, and impact in your life. Head on over to lifterlms.com and get the best gear for your course creator journey. Let's build the most engaging results getting courses on the internet. Mm -hmm.